Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Alejandra Bronfman. My guest today is Nicole Bourbonnet. She's the author of Birth Control in the Decolonizing Caribbean, published in 2016 by Cambridge University Press. This book is a wide-ranging examination of the implementation of birth control in the British Caribbean. Bourbonnet focuses on Bermuda, Barbados, Jamaica, and Trinidad to understand the ways that a range of actors, including colonial officials, feminist reformers and activists, and working-class women all shaped policies as well as practices related to control over reproductive lives. She tells these complex stories with the nuance and sense of humanity they warrant. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Nicole. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. Hi. So um, we're going to start by talking a little bit about your own trajectory and your own sort of path towards becoming a historian of the Caribbean. But um, in the interest of full disclosure, I want to just tell our listeners that we've known each other for a long time. <laughs> and I'm really just so delighted to be having this conversation with you. Um, and so I'll also say that when I first met you, even when you were an undergraduate, you had a kind of very focused commitment to studying the Caribbean, which is pretty unusual in a place like Vancouver, British Columbia. So can you please tell us how, how, it, how you came to be a historian of the Caribbean? Sure. Yeah, it's, it's not obvious. I grew up in a small town in rural Manitoba, as you know, which is pretty distant from the Caribbean in a lot of ways. Um, but when I was 18, I did one of these volunteer abroad programs. Uh, you know, one of these kind of when you're 18 and you think you're going to save the world. And I ended up in Guyana. Now, as you might have guessed, I didn't save the world. Um, I mostly came away from the experience realizing how naive I was and and how ignorant as well of the, about the Caribbean, uh, maybe about life in general, but particularly about the Caribbean. And I came back to university in, in Vancouver, really just so fascinated by Caribbean history. I really, the more I learned about it, the more... I kind of delved into it, the more interesting I found it kind of as a, as a region, but also as a place where so much of 
global history happen too, you know, as this kind of crossroads of global history. And so, yeah, I just kind of kept taking it in my courses. Even if it wasn't a course about the Caribbean, I would end up writing a paper about the Caribbean somehow, uh, which was also fostered, obviously, by having some great professors of the Caribbean. So um, the book itself covers debates and the implement implementation sorry, of birth control policies in the British Caribbean, right? So um, apart from the fact that we really needed a book like this, and it's kind of astonishing that one hadn't been written yeah. Um, how did you get the idea for it? Yeah. So that was very um, random, I guess. Uh, I was interested in the Caribbean. And actually, I don't know if you remember this, but one summer I was working for you as a research assistant mm -hmm. and you were having me look at microfilm of the Jamaica Gleaner. Uh, in the yeah. years 1938, 1939. And I was looking for you for articles about the radio. But what I kept finding was articles about birth control. <laughs> so I, I did find some radio stuff. It wasn't a total loss. But, you did. You did. Um, <laughs> but what really stood out to me was like every day there was an article about birth control. Uh, and this is in 1938, 1939. Um, I went on to write my master's about this, and there was something like 360 or, or 380 articles just in that one year alone on birth control. And so I was really struck by this, like, why are people talking about birth control in Jamaica in 1938? What does that even mean? I mean, what are birth control methods in 1938? Uh, and how did this play into the obviously uh, he know, heated tensions around labor, around nationalism, um, all of this kind of activism that was happening in these same years, 1938 being the era of a major labor rebellion in Jamaica. So that was kind of my initial interest that so pulled me into the particular story of birth control uh, and then kind of went on from there. I decided to expand it to look at other islands because they kept coming up in the sources on Jamaica. So they were talking about what was going on in Bermuda, what was going on in Barbados uh, and Trinidad. And so I came to see the story as, as interconnected. So you do this really brilliant thing at the beginning of the book. You start with a letter from Rose Gordon in Jamaica and she says she's given birth 14 times lost three children and that she was, quote, a slave to childbearing, and also that she wanted to, quote, be free of this terrible strain. And then a few pages in, you drop kind of a bomb, which is that you have in your possession or you looked at 512 letters like this from women, right? Mm -hmm. And I want to get to all of those later. But um, I actually want to ask you about the structure of the book, because um, what happens is that you you sort of set the stage with these women and this hint of these letters, but then you go you sort of pull back to debates among colonial officials, birth control activists, local newspapers, and all kinds of other actors. And the letters and the women really are at the heart of the third chapter. So we don't really get to them until the third chapter. And it's a kind of a, I was thinking about that. It's, a, it's kind of, you build this sort of suspense, right? In terms of, okay, like where are these women and what are they going to think about all of these debates, right? So, um, so before we get to actually the story, I would love to hear you talk about how you decided to structure the book that way. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I thought about that, actually. I remember one of the peer reviewers suggested that I move that section um, about the women earlier in the book. But for me, I felt that I needed to first explain all how that clinic came to be in the first place, right? So before we can understand what 
women were doing there, what they expected from the clinic, what they were going to get at the clinic, who they were going to encounter there. I felt that first I needed to explain why this clinic opened, the politics around it, and the particular actors who were involved, um, you know, the secretary of the clinic, the nurses, so that we could understand a bit that interaction. And it also, I think the the structure of the book also follows the way that I encountered the story as well. So when I started, I started obviously with the newspapers, as I mentioned, I was looking at legislative debates, I was looking at, um, you know, editorials, uh, pamphlets, things that were published. And it was only about, I don't know, halfway through my first research trip that I actually came across the letters. And up until that point, I had really thought I was just going to tell a story about the politics of birth control, right, and about the discourses around it and how it kind of intersected with nationalism, colonialism, that kind of thing. And then when I found the letters, I was like, oh, okay, there's this whole other story here. There's this social history of birth control. There's, uh, you know, this material experience of birth control. And then I realized that that was a huge part of the story, and I wanted to tell that part too. So, yeah, I think it was partly just following my own path and then partly I felt that it it needed to be explained before we could understand the women's engagement um, with the clinic itself. Yeah. So let's so let's get into sort of the opening of the book with the 1930s um, and that setting. And I wonder if you can kind of paint a picture for us of how uh, different groups fell on the question of birth control. I mean, there were a lot of really fascinating debates that you trace and kind of some surprising positions that people took. So I wonder if you could sort of sketch that out for us a little bit. Sure. So on the one hand, as, as we might expect, uh, the colonial office and uh, many of the white elites on the islands of the Caribbean, ac- across the different islands, latch on pretty quickly to neo-Malthusian and eugenic discourses of birth control, right? So uh, the argument that the reason that the Caribbean is poor, the reason why there's this uh, you know, discontent is because there's just too many people. The islands are overpopulated, and particularly there's too many of the wrong people which is, you know, working class, uh, obviously racialized understanding of who should and should not be born. So that discourse is, is there immediately um, and feeding into, you know, larger race class inequalities. Then there's also uh, a discourse among kind of modernizing nationalists, uh, both leaders like Norman Manley in Jamaica, uh, Granley Adams in Barbados, uh, Eric Williams in Trinidad, but also among public health professionals, among uh, middle, middle class actors with different kind of political leanings who are arguing that birth control is not, you know, that overpopulation is not the only problem or necessarily even the main problem, but that helping people to have smaller families would be beneficial for development for some of the plans that these actors have for a future uh, that hopefully will not be a colonial future, right? So it becomes kind of connected to these nationalist aspirations and to kind of modernizing discourse. Then we have, on the other hand, uh, some religious opposition among uh, religious leaders, both both Catholic and Anglican, although Anglican churches kind of officially by that period have accepted family planning uh, 
in certain cases, you know, within marriage. But in the Caribbean, a lot of Anglican leaders came out against it because they argued that it was a different case in the Caribbean because so many children were being born out of marriage. So they argued that uh, in this context, it would not be appropriate to, to promote birth control. So there's that religious opposition. And then there's also opposition among some um, black nationalist groups, particularly among some members of the Universal Negro Improvement Association or the UNIA. Um, there's an argument that Marcus Garvey, although um, deceased at this point, would not have supported birth control, uh, that he believed, you know, that there, that it was a, um, a weapon against the poor, against the black population. Of course, you know, you don't have to look far to find discourses like that, right? Because that eugenic neo-Malthusian discourse is being promoted in newspapers and, and legislative debates quite openly. So there's something there. Um, but then what I found interesting is when you dive a bit closer into the UNIA debates and the debates among uh, the Black community in the Caribbean, is that there's also these voices saying, okay, yes, of course we're against compulsory measures, we're against these kind of eugenic discourses and these eugenic um, plans, but voluntary birth control could in fact be very helpful to people as individuals. Uh, and some actors, uh, particularly some of the women within the UNIA make the argument that it's also a matter of women's rights. Um, and this is a minority discourse within the region in the 1930s, 1940s. Obviously, it becomes prevalent later in the region and globally that birth control is a women's right. But uh, there are some actors making this case early on. And there's also a couple of surprising, I would say, alliances. So at one point, uh, the Bermuda government releases this report on unemployment where they suggest the compulsory sterilization of large swaths of the population, um, people with mental illness, um, people who have had illegitimate children. And both the Afro-Bermudian community and a group of suffragists, mostly dominated by white elite women, mobilize against this along with religious leaders and along with some other actors to oppose it and are successful in preventing it from being passed. Uh, similar proposals also are, are not passed in, in Barbados and Jamaica. So on the one hand, it is, you know, a lot of the positions fall along kind of race, class, gender lines that you would expect. But then there's also this kind of broader complexity to, to the way people fall on this issue uh, and and where they come out of come out in the debates. Yeah, I want to get back to this question. Of, I, I was really fascinated by um, some of these women like Mamie Aiken, for example, um, and I want to get back to them. But, for, but actually, first, um, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the geography here, because you start with Bermuda, and Bermuda was actually one of the first places to get a birth control clinic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so how did that, why, and also, you know, Bermuda as you point out, isn't always thought of as part of the Caribbean. So um, I think we need to talk about Bermuda a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, it was, I decided to include Bermuda. It is kind of, you know, some people see Bermuda as part of the Caribbean, some people don't, uh, for a variety of different reasons. I decided that Bermuda was really important to this story because it kept coming up in my other sources. So uh, usually as either a example of kind of 
racial eugenics run amok, or as an example of, you know, what violence could be doing um, in order to, to limit families. So what Bermuda meant in the Caribbean when it came to birth control really depended on what your position was on birth control. Uh, but for example, there are protests against this house, uh, this unemployment report that I mentioned. There are protests against that that run to New York, Caribbean communities in New York, uh, Boston, and all the way down to Guyana. So it this information about what's going on in Bermuda is important to the story and continues to be cited many, many years later, uh, even long after. Now, part of the reason, I mean, birth, Bermuda is one of the first places in the Caribbean, or it is the first place in the Caribbean that I know of to have a birth control clinic. It's also one of the first places in the world to have one that was supported with government funding. Uh, it's in 1934, so it's really early, or no, 1936, sorry. Um, it's, it's really quite early. And part of the reason this happens in Bermuda versus in other places is because uh, at this time, although Bermuda is a, a colony of the UK, it has a lot more independence to act locally uh, because of its unique history, um, because largely because it had a much larger white population. It was almost like in between a settler colony and, uh, and a Caribbean colony. So it has this kind of unique, unique structure that allows the government to act a bit more quickly uh, in this field. Whereas in the other Caribbean islands, any kind of attempts to get funding for birth control from different associations, different actors who are organizing clinics is, is very quickly shut down uh, by both local actors and by the colonial office. So um, what about the other islands? You have Barbados, Jamaica, and Trinidad. What are, how did you choose those and what are the differences between them? Yeah, I mean, there's a, a lot of differences between them. Of course, it's always hard when you do a comparative study to, you know, to not end up kind of washing over some of the differences. Uh, Jamaica, obviously, uh, one of the most populated islands, um, kind of weighs heavily, you know, in, in the colonial, in the mind of the colonial office, kind of a lot of the time things that are happening in Jamaica then determine policy in other areas in this period. Very strong kind of nationalist labor movements in these years. Uh, Barbados was seen as a particular concern because it was the mo one of the most densely populated islands. Uh, so a lot of this overpopulation discourse really uh, starts earliest in, in Barbados and, and becomes really strong. And Trinidad um, obviously is, is distinct through its different kind of population dynamics. So having a large uh, population of East Indians uh, who came over after, after slavery ended uh, through indenture. So they're all really different islands. I mean, the reason I picked them is, is really just because they were the places that seemed to move the most quickly in terms of establishing clinics, first in Bermuda, then in Jamaica, and then in the 1950s in Barbados and Trinidad. I actually found out quite a bit later that there was also a clinic in Bahamas in, I think, 1955 or somewhere around that. 
uh, unfortunately too late to include that story in the book, but I think it would be really interesting. Apparently it opened and then closed down very quickly, like within a year or something uh, due to opposition. And also, I, I mean, I would have to confirm this, but from the little source that I had, because apparently one of the clinic nurses got pregnant, which is, you know, never a good, <laughs> never a good look when you open a birth control clinic. So um, yeah, so there's, there's probably other stories there. Um, you know, I'm, maybe there are other false starts in other areas that just didn't attract my attention, but it was really driven by the story of birth control above all. I mean, one of the things that's really interesting about this book and was seems really hard to pull off, which you do really well, um, is that it's not just a comparison, right? You don't just sort of sit there and put each island side by side, but you also show how many networks and connections there were between them all, right? So a lot of these activists were moving around and the, the newspapers moved around and there was, there was a sense of a kind of things, ideas, people, um, and even objects kind of circulating around. And, and I guess um, uh, one of the things that seems to have been moving around a lot were, were these women who traveled or whose um, whose writings were kind of circulating in, in different circles and things like that. So um, I, I want to talk about some of these women and these women who we kind of see over and over again, who pop up, not just um, sort of as sources, but also as sources of sources. For instance, I think it was, um, wasn't it in the archives of one of these women that you found all of these letters? Um, May Farquharson, maybe, mm-hmm. um, and then also Mamie Aiken. And so um, it, it, I, I want to hear you talk more about these women. How, how do we, how does the historiography look different if we sort of take their perspective? Yeah, so the, uh, May Farquharson, that was a huge source collection for me. She was the secretary of the Jamaica Birth Control League, the which later became the Jamaica Family Planning Association. And in reality, she was the one who kind of did most of the organization of the clinic. There was a board of directors, but she was the person kind of on the ground. I think there's something like 10 boxes of hers at the Jamaica archives. And it was one of those things where, I mean, this never happens. I I never tell my grad students about this because it's not fair, but I literally arrived and the first binder I opened up at the Jamaica archives was a list of all of her collection. Uh, Just, you know, an entire binder of documents on birth control. And I was like, oh, well, is this how archival research works? Great. Uh, It doesn't work that way normally. But um, yeah, so she has, uh, she basically kept, I think, every letter she received and copies of every letter she wrote. So, uh, and also clinic records, um, you know, balance sheets, shopping lists, everything. So it was an incredible uh, collection to work with. Um, Mamie Aiken is uh, much harder to track down. Uh, obviously, they have completely different um, profiles, right? So Mayfar Kuharsen was the daughter of a, a sugar estate owner. She's a very wealthy, elite white woman, tons of resources, um, and, you know, uh, the privilege of kind of having her collection taken by the archives. Mimi Aiken was someone whose traces I kind of found mostly through looking in in newspaper articles, um, kind of tracking her down through that. There's also been some great stuff written about her um, by scholars of African-American history because she lived in the United States for a while. And so you can see that she does circulate quite a bit uh, between the U.S. Uh, She spent some time in the 
Central America uh, before she ends up in Jamaica. And even then she kind of goes back at one point to the U.S. and learns more about birth control, visits birth control clinics, etc. Um, but she's not as involved, involved in the daily work of the clinic. There it's more um, run by May Farquharson in, in the Jamaican case, but as in, in other cases of the other clinics as well, it's really doctors and nurses who are doing most of the work, right? So uh, usually a woman doctor in most of these clinics um, and a whole bunch of nurses who themselves usually come from working or middle-class backgrounds. And so I do think that it really shifts to look at their papers and to look at the work um, being done by these women in the clinics shifts it from being a story just about, you know, neo-Malthusian, eugenic politics to being also a story about, you know, nurses, some of whom themselves had came from large families and were driven by the desire to help women like their mothers. Um, you know, this is this kind of whole other element of the story that I think would have been totally lost if I had just focused on the political arena. Yeah, I, I wanted to talk more about the nurses because I do think that they're fascinating. I don't know if you have one or two in particular that you remember, but I, it struck me that they are really t translators in so many ways, right? Um, about knowledge and about bodies and about sort of, okay, let's take this, you know, whatever whatever it is that the, that the, that the colonial officials or the you know, the sort of more middle-class elite are throwing at us and let's, how, how do we actually implement this on the ground and, and make sure it's the best thing possible for the women that, that we're serving. So I don't know if you have more sort of specific nurses or, or how you thought about nurses when you were writing, when you were writing this. Yeah, there's, uh, there was one stack of letters in particular between nurse Campbell and uh, I, I don't even know her first name, to be honest. It only just was referred to as Nurse Campbell, but Nurse Campbell and, and May Farquharson uh, in, in May Farquharson's collection. And it's really interesting because, okay, May herself is a very complicated character, to say the least. Uh, and she definitely has some eugenicist, some neo-Malthusian kind of tendencies to her. She kind of vacillates between putting forward this kind of public health, social welfare approach, but also gets very easily frustrated, particularly when birth control doesn't kind of immediately catch on. And Nurse Campbell kind of in this correspondence is constantly writing to her like, look, okay, it's going to take a while, you know, people are coming from these backgrounds. She's trying to kind of defend the women that that are coming to the clinics and, and help them with some of their problems. But then also sometimes in the records, she's kind of trying to negotiate for better salaries as well. So a couple of times she threatens to quit or, or does actually quit and, and takes up a job somewhere else. Um, she, I from the little bit of background I could find on her, she also was involved in some labor movements and things like that. So she has her own story. Um, I wish that I had better sources on that. And I think if I, you know, if I went back and did the book over again, I would have really tried to do an oral history project with nurses who were involved, at least in some of the later years of these clinics, because I think there is really uh, a deeper story there about the role of nurses and the way that they navigated, you know, this, this intermediary position. Yeah, they seem to be, they're sort of between, you know, male doctors often and, mm -hmm. and patients, and they're, they're, they're really fascinating, I think. 
Um, so, okay, so we move towards the 1940s and the Moyne Commission, and you make a pretty good case that that kind of shifts the terrain um, a great deal. So I wonder if you can, um, if you can sort of talk about that and what, 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 what difference did the Moyne Commission make and how did that um, change, change things with regards to birth control? I think the Moyne Commission, so this was the kind of investigation launched by the colonial office after the labor rebellions in the Caribbean to kind of find out what was the cause of the unrest um, and why, why, what could be done about it. And I'm not sure that the Moyne Commission really changed so much in the debates within the Caribbean, but it definitely led to a colonial office obsession with overpopulation. I mean, I don't even know how else to put it. I went to the colonial archives in Kew and there were like 50 folders on overpopulation and birth control in the Caribbean, uh, which is even more surprising when you find out that they didn't actually do anything uh, very much uh, at all about birth control in the Caribbean. So they just wrote a lot of memos and a lot of pamphlets that never got published and, you know, came up with these schemes of what they were going to do. Um, but really, it, it, it comes out first, I think, most strongly in, in the Moyne Commission, where there's some of the commissioners, when they're interviewing, you know, local people across the Caribbean, are really like badgering them about overpopulation. So some of them will be talking about something and they'll, the commissioner will interrupt them and say, well, but do you think it's okay to be asking for these things when you're having so many children and fertility rates are out of control, you know? So they're really aggressive. Some of them are really aggressive about it. And then a few colonial officials afterwards make this almost like their personal mandate within the colonial office to try and get some support for intervening, providing birth control or encouraging local governments uh, to to get involved. But really the farthest that they go is at one point they send around a circular um, encouraging you know, local governments to take some action and they get mostly negative responses and they admit in the end that it was kind of totally pointless uh, to send this circular. The other thing that they do is to provide some funding for fertility studies um, particularly the Jamaica Family Life Project, which was headed by American demographer Jane Myon Stikos. And this does have some effect. Actually, it has a stronger effect, I would say, in the long run, because the studies basically showed that many Jamaican women did want to have less children, you know, were open to birth control. And this, in the late 1950s, ends up having an effect on political debates and political opportunities. But the colonial office wasn't very happy with it. Uh, they they didn't feel that they had enough control over the study. They didn't really have much control at all. Uh, and they didn't feel that it was really strong enough in its proposals. So, um, yeah, so I guess the Moyne Commission kind of starts that really powerful discourse within the colonial office of overpopulation being the problem but they don't actually do much in the end. <laughs> I mean, I think that that, that that sort of um, leads to, I think it sort of highlights the way that you framed it in the chapter itself. Um, and I'm just going to read a little quote. It's, you say, colonial, the colonial office's approach to birth control highlights both resistance to the colonial state's interventionism and disappointment with its ultimate failure to deliver on its civilizing mission. So basically they are getting more and more kind of ham-fisted is what you're arguing. They can't do anything <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. 
Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I guess it, it fits with the larger, right? After the Moyne Commission and in the 1940s, they launched this development and welfare program that's supposed to address all these problems and maybe hedge off, you know, the independence movements. Uh, but of course, it, it doesn't. I mean, it's too little too late, right, to kind of try and invest in social welfare and health at the, at the, in the dying days of of empire and and birth control kind of follows that trajectory as well right it's um yeah it it also just kind of dies out right um so finally we get to the letters in chapter three so you've set all of the like you've really set us up well to appreciate um the the weight and the importance of these letters and um as you mentioned i mean these really are every dissertator's dream right just kind of like amazing amazing source um, and so I wonder if you can talk a little bit about them. And also, I mean, you you first read them some years ago, right? So which ones do, are there any that you really remember that stand out to you that that you you know you think you're you're gonna not forget? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's honestly it was really hard to read the letters. I mean, some of them are kind of optimistic and you know, we've just gotten married and we want to not have, you know, children so quickly, that kind of thing. Uh, but most of them were really, in, really quite intense. I mean, women talking about having a child every year. Um, there's women who talk about feeling completely hopeless, who talk about feeling like they can't live, go on, they can't live anymore, you know? Um the woman, I mean, the woman, as you mentioned, that I start with talks about being a slave to childbearing, which, especially in the context of the Caribbean, with the history of slavery, it just seems so powerful to me to to use that language. Uh, there's also women who talk about having had, uh, who are already pregnant and are asking for something to, to end the, or to interrupt the pregnancy. I think they all, really the sum total of them all, really... Uh, were so intense to read and really obviously this wasn't everybody's experience there are these are 500 letters out of you know millions of women in the Caribbean so uh, you know these are often the kind of most desperate cases who would come to the to the clinic you know women it was women on average who were older had more children uh, you know had had them quicker but I think it was still really gave you a sense of the gravity of reproduct- reproduction in this period um, and the intensity of trying to, yeah, trying to have a family, but uh, but not, not so quickly as one put it. One woman, I remember one letter, the woman said, I'd like to have my lot, you know, my the amount of children I'm supposed to have, but not so quickly, right? So she manages to kind of still hold on to kind of cultural ideals of, of childbearing, but make the point that let's just like slow it down a little bit. This is a bit yeah. intense. So how would you, I mean, if we're sort of looking back now on these, on these clinics, um, I'm wondering how we would talk about in terms of you know, did they work, right? So on the one hand, it seemed, it's very clear that what they offered was um, a sense of control and um, empowerment to a certain t- sense to these women who actually really wanted and asked for um, birth control. But on the other hand, you do point out that 
often, you know, the methods they used didn't work very well, or they were still in experimental phases, or, you know, all kinds of things happened, right? So, so the the bigger picture is sort of, you know, how would you assess how would you assess the role of these clinics in the end? Yeah, I think even the clinics themselves at the time saw themselves as kind of pilot projects, you know, um, a space to start giving women uh, methods and kind of show that there was demand. I think everybody recognized that one clinic in one town was not going to, you know, make a big change overall uh, in women's lives. And I think from the limited amount that you can tell from reading these sources or some of the other records I had from other clinics, you can definitely see that there are some women who find it, you know, really exciting and it it meets their needs. um, And, you know, they're successful using uh, the diaphragm, for example. But much more often is a story of disappointment and of uh, ultimately... I think in most of the clinics, like half the women never came back even once, <laughs> maybe, uh, you know, to get more supplies. Um, there was a lot of failures with the methods. I mean, they were not great methods, to be honest. I mean, I think about what involved, I mean, there were like, you know, spermicidal foams and powders that would burst out of their tubes in hot weather. And, um, you know, these diaphragms that you had to like fit perfectly over your over your cervix somehow and then you'd leave it in overnight and then you'd have to hang it up the next day and you know where did you hang your diaphragm if you lived in a small (laughs) house you know I just the practicalities of it were pretty complicated and sometimes the you know nurses and doctors weren't particularly sympathetic you know as I was saying May Farquharson for example would get so frustrated with people who couldn't use these methods um, but when I look at them, I'm like, I wouldn't be able to use those methods. That seems very complicated. Um, and unpleasant, you know, some of them had smells. One of them, I remember there was some complaints in the clinic in Bermuda because the Volpar paste, one of the pastes was labeled poison on the label. So, I mean, you know, you can kind of understand why people were not necessarily that satisfied. Um, yeah, so I, I think... Yeah, overall, it, it wasn't usually the solution that it was It was sometimes um, projected as, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I wonder, actually, this question just, um, just popped up in my mind as we were talking about these different kinds of methods. And did you come across anything in your sources about, you know, alternative methods that were not kind of coming from Western medicine and those kinds of things or, you know, herbal practices that people had been using for many years and things like that? Yes. Um, so mostly in the case of abortifacients, I think that's how you say that word. Yeah. <laughs> um, so methods that would be aimed at interrupting a pregnancy or as, or as it was often kind of seen at the time as bringing on a delayed period. Right. So mm-hmm. there's a bit of a, um, it, you know, it, People often don't talk about it in in that period as uh, bringing about an abortion, but rather just as bringing on a period that was late. Uh, and of course, in the in the kind of 30s, 40s, 50s, people aren't 
getting pregnancy tests after one missed period. You know, there are no pregnancy tests. So you don't really know you're pregnant uh, often until you really start to show kind of physical signs. So this created that little bit of space to, you know, bring on a, a period as a, as a birth control method, uh, even if we would now probably consider that an abortion method. But there are some evidence of using women using these types of methods, different herbs. Uh, I can't remember them exactly, but I think pennyroyal, which is also something that in other contexts was used. Um, there's also, I remember the birth control, one of the birth control clinics in Barbados talks about how women would say they'd had a slip, which would either mean that they kind of slipped and fell and provoked an abortion or slipped something into uh, the uterus to provoke an abortion. And this is, I mean, common to all over the world, right? Any any country you go to in this period is going to have different methods, physical, uh, inserting things into uterus or um, herbal to, pro- to provoke abortions. Um, some of, for example, uh, uh, some of the works on slavery have shown how women carried on methods from Africa to the Caribbean that they used in in provoking abortions. So, yeah, so there are definitely those kinds of methods available. And some of the letters sort of speak to that. So they'll say, OK, I'm pregnant. Could you send me something to bring or to prevent this one from developing or something mm-hmm. like that? Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's obviously this knowledge of it. Um, yeah. So um, you wrap the book up by zooming, kind of zooming back out, right? And it brings in, you bring in USAID um, and really um, what you represent as a kind of general and and more broad acceptance and practice of birth control. There's still issues and controversies, but really it seems to be something that more and more people have access to and almost take for granted. And what's interesting is that you've really unpacked and really shown the process and the messiness and the contingency um, of that right and the the way in which uh people may take it for granted now but there was a whole lot of stuff that happened beforehand so um i wonder if you can talk about what you think this particular perspective adds and contributes to the historiography of decolonization sure i mean i think on on the one hand it shows that decolonization was also about these kinds of struggles, right? So it was about labor, it was about class, about race, about global inequality, but it was also about gender and it was about how families are made and and what kind of families um, were needed for, you know, nation states, for, for independence. So there is this kind of I think it, it sort of shows the gendered politics of decolonization and how those intersected with race and, and class debates as well. And it also shows um, that decolonization did matter. I don't, I don't know if that's a weird thing to say, but I feel like there's often a lot of critiques of like, okay, there were still all these problems afterwards. But mm. at least in the case of the Caribbean, in the case of birth control, it, it, I don't think it ever would have happened under... British colonial rule you know there was just there was that um, you know it wasn't democratic there wasn't the possibility for these different actors to be part of governments so that could then push for birth control right I mean a lot of the reason why birth control comes to be accepted as government policy in the Caribbean is because these nurses doctors uh, social workers 
end up becoming part of governments or have links to people in government that can then kind of push forward these policies, uh, sometimes even against powerful opposition from church leaders, for example. Uh, Eric Williams' election for, in Trinidad in uh, 1956, for example, is, a, I think it's 1956, I'm really bad with dates for a historian, but um, is, a really, is a really good example because the Catholic Church really mobilizes strongly against him um, because, of, for many reasons, but partly because he ha- had been on record as supporting birth control, but he wins, you know, uh, and therefore there is this space to to promote those kinds of policies. So, yeah, I guess that's kind of how it intersects with decolonization in a few different ways. Yeah, and, and theoretically you make a really um, sort of elegant point that uh, the discourse of birth control was both coercive and offered openings for people, and that's very persuasive sort of throughout the book. But then you um, sort of towards the end... Um, there's a kind of warning <laughs> um, about about sort of, you know, the future of all of this. And you, you say until internal race and class disparities and the unequal position of the Caribbean islands in the world system are fully addressed, reproductive politics will remain a potential flashpoint in the region. So sort of looking back and then looking forward, obviously we have not um, solved the race and class disparities or probably the position of the Caribbean islands in the world system. So, so where do we stand today with these kinds of issues? Yeah, I mean, listening to you say that sentence, that could probably be said of anywhere in the world, as we <laughs> can, can obviously see. You know, I mean, the um, abortion law context in the U.S. right now, right? Like, mm-hmm. reproductive yeah. reproduction is just always this potential political tool, this political weapon, because it touches, I I think, because it touches on this extremely intimate aspect of people's lives, right? It's easy to get passionate about one way or another, because it's about reproduction as a, you know, family, as a species. Uh, So it's always kind of there. I think one of the kind of main points I wanted to make in the conclusion is that it it also just takes so many different levels to ensure that something is empowering and not coercive, right? It, on the one hand, it takes, you know, funders and governments that don't set targets that lead to, you know, unethical practice. It also takes doctors and nurses who really give free choice, who are really about their patients' interests rather than about you know, what they think is best for the patient, whether they should use this method or not. And it takes women having the resources and the networks to really assert themselves and and what they want. And at all of these different levels, things can go one way or another. And so I think as much as, you know, we should rightly celebrate the way that discourse around reproduction has changed in many cases, uh, there's also this feeling that unless that's embraced at every level and and there's kind of this need for constant vigilance, I think at every level to ensure that that's what the commitment is and it can always go back. It can always get retangled in all of these other issues. So I've taken up lots of your time. I have one last question and it's a question that I love to ask people because I'm always like beautifully surprised. So what, what are you working on next? What's your new project? Well, I'm still obsessed with family planning so <laughs> uh, and this this movement. Um, so I, I talk a little bit in the book about some of the international advocates who came to the Caribbean 
uh, to kind of get involved in local movements. Uh, Margaret Sanger from the U.S., Edith Hallmartin from the U.K., and then later uh, Naomi Thomas uh, from the U.S. And, and kind of and also about how the Caribbean gets involved in international organizations like the International Planned Parenthood Federation. And I was very interested about, you know, what are these people doing in the Caribbean and and what are the Caribbean actors getting out of these relationships with international activists? And so for my next book, I'm kind of shifting from looking, you know, at, at the Caribbean to looking at these international actors um, in themselves as a kind of cohort. So the International Planned Parenthood Federation, the Pathfinder Fund, the Population Council, all these different organizations that arise uh, in the mid 50s and become these net, that kind of build these networks, fund research, support local activists in different ways. And so I'm kind of looking at how these actors who were often, you know, these organizations who are often composed of uh, doctors, nurses, social workers, that kind of strata of, of intermediary actors and how they, they kind of visualized this global movement in different ways, how they reacted to local challenges and how they dealt with the suddenly kind of dramatic rise in funding for family planning in the mid-60s onwards um, with USAID and other organizations or other kind of major donors getting involved. So really looking at this global family planning movement, how people tried to kind of spread, they called it the gospel of family planning uh, around the world and what actually happened on the in, in practice with that, right? So Yes, the politics, but also, again, what happened when you actually went to some other country and tried to talk about birth control, you know, to, to people? What were the reactions? What were the material realities of that movement? I can't wait to read that book. <laughs> well, <laughs> Thank you I'm so trying much. to write it right now. <laughs> um, well, good luck with that. And, um, and thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed talking about this to you. Thanks very much. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time.